Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, thank you for joining me on this latest edition of the Once Bitten podcast, another one in the series of the Wall of Content. And joining me is the force of nature, Greg Foss, who's come out of left field with 30 years of trading CDS, credit default swaps, under his belt and all and other fixed income and other uh, products as well, which you will find out about in this interview. And taken the Bitcoin world by a little bit of storm and a big character, big character on Twitter, started calling out Peter Schiff and all of those shenanigans, which is great to see as well. So I hope you like this interview and Greg, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate you doing that and um, it was great fun. Before we get into the show, of course, make sure you head over. If you're in the UK, coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. If you're in the US, swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. If you're across Europe, relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H forward slash bitten. These companies are helping you stack sats in a very sensible way. And once you've got these sats, you need to take control of them. Put them on a hardware wallet. You can use the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only edition hardware wallet. You can find that at shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten. That will get you a small discount. So there's not much more to say. I really hope you guys are enjoying this wall of content. This is like the ninth or tenth in a row that I've uh, released. I've really enjoyed doing them. One day I will run out of content, or maybe I won't. Too many plebs to speak to in such little time. Enjoy this interview with Greg. Thank you everybody for listening, liking, writing, reviews, and submitting whatever you do. Really appreciate it. Enjoy this one with Greg. Greg, we're good, man. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Great to uh, great to meet you. It's uh, it's been it's been great seeing you um, burst onto the scene and uh, and come on and do all the uh, the different podcasts. Can I can I tell you why? It's just because I I've only discovered Twitter in the last six years of uh, sorry six months of my life. I had no idea what a powerful tool that was, and I was joking with you earlier. But the reality is, I'm 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 old, so old that. Uh, this stuff is not second nature to me. So you find something like Bitcoin Twitter and oh man, what a cool tool. It's it's crazy, isn't it? Like you you've, you kind of, I mean, I see my kids and they're on Instagram and Snapchat and whatever else. F- Facebook, I just never, ever liked. I just okay. hated it. And then I'm, I'm, I'm a little younger than you, probably not a great deal. I'm 44. Well, I'm 57, so, so that's enough. That's that's a long, that's a lot, of, uh, yeah. a lot of a lot of delta right there. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and what to like when I've I've been on Twitter for for a long time. If you actually look at my profile, a long time, and for ages, I didn't really interact with it. I didn't, you know, it was like it seemed like just another one of these platforms to follow follow Z list celebrities and okay. footballers and whatever else. But then once I found Bitcoin and, and even then it took me a few years to even find Bitcoin Twitter. 
And then you just lurk for a while because you're just like, the fuck is going on here? <laughs> well, but not only that, but the people are, they're just such an eclectic group and very, very passionate. And it's, uh, I tell you, I, I've learned so much. And, uh, you know, I was, I was uh, in our business. Uh, we were chatting about this earlier. I was wed to the Bloomberg. That was my only tool which is a beautiful tool for trading and, and, and communication and, you know, all the, the uh, functionality of the Bloomberg terminal, but uh, man, you don't realize what's available out there. And then having uh, graduated to this, uh, this platform, you, you just, you, you see the beauty of the uh, social media, no question. Mate, I remember the old Reuters machines. Remember oh, yeah, those things? Oh, hundred percent. Oh yeah. Oh, how bad were they? Well, how about, I'll, I'll even go further. Do you remember the uh, mechanical? So first of all, I started trading when some of the guys on the floor still used bond books because there was no uh, calculators. Uh, there was not even bond calculators. And then they came out with the mechanical bond calculators. I forgot their names, but you know, it was, it was like a, a typewriter, a glorified typewriter that calculated uh, crude interest and in, uh, principal based on price and, uh, and uh, maturity, et cetera, et cetera. But then Bloomberg stormed on them on the scene and it just took the fixed income trading world by storm. It was such a beautiful invention. What year was that? Do you remember? Well, I, so I started trading in 1988. Um, I'm going to say it was 1993 that, um, you know, that, that Bloomberg first came their first, uh, evolution. Um, and you know, the, the big thing about Bloomberg that a lot of equity traders don't really under, don't get is like, you know, charts and everything in equities were, were standard issue. Uh, but bond pricing, uh, the, the calculation of duration, convexity, uh, change price, change uh, um, your yield, et cetera, for a given instrument. And then the graphical uh, interpretations available on Bloomberg, like Michael Bloomberg was a genius, no question. And he, his invention revolutionized the understanding of fixed income pricing and then revolutionized the trading because of the communications. He, he basically set up his own social network amongst fixed income traders around the world. And you couldn't, you couldn't trade bonds if you didn't have a Bloomberg. It was, uh, you know, you, you were so materially disadvantaged. So then they brought in the equity side, you know, and charts and equities and exchange listed uh, things. But it, it started as a fixed income tool. And uh, yeah, foreign exchange, probably right. You probably uh, graduated pretty quickly. Your business uh, uh, FX options and all that stuff. So it, yeah, it, it was, there's no question that he was a, he should have been a billionaire, was a billionaire and, uh, you know, developed inside of Merrill Lynch. Right. And then uh, he brought it outside because Merrill, uh, Merrill didn't want it to, uh, if I remember the story correctly, Merrill didn't want to develop it or whatever. And Michael Bloomberg just said, that's fine. I want to buy it. I want to take it and, and market it globally. So joining the markets in 1988, that's just after this crash. We had a huge crash in 1987. What was so, pulling uh, yeah, you into so that markets? Was my, uh, that was my graduating year, um, or sorry, you know, my second. It's, I, I I did four semesters uh, in, in a in a business school in the U.S. So in my third semester, yeah, October 1987, that was uh, <laughs> near and dear in my heart. Um, but then 1988, you know, I, 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 you're right. There was the crash, but then 1988, my inauguration into the uh, fixed income side of the world was. Um, starting with 14% interest rates, but more importantly, with the default of all the Latin, uh, most Latin American uh, countries, as well as lesser developed countries that were all defaulting on their, uh, their bank debt. So yeah, it was an exciting time to get your start in the, uh, in the, in the markets for sure. So let, let's 
kind of frame that up for people when when you say countries were defaulting like latin america were defaulting like you know how would you explain that to to a kid so this is really a great question so um in the mid 80s uh petrodollars were circulating around the global banking system and the the banks needed to uh to find uh demand for for the their new their newfound loan balances if you will and they found the countries generally banks weren't huge lenders to countries uh prior to that but the global banking system decided that uh, they were going to lend us dollar denominated debt five-year loans essentially to uh countries that are termed somewhat pejoratively but ldc lesser developed countries so those countries included Latin America, but they also included Vietnam, Philippines, Thailand, uh, countries that had, uh, you know, that, that could be termed uh, not developed world, but emerging world uh, uh, borrowers. And given the fact that they were, these countries were borrowing in U.S. dollars and required to pay back their obligations in U.S. dollars, any fluctuations in foreign currencies materially impacted their ability to, uh, to repay those loans. And sure enough, in 1988, um, <clears throat> a number of the countries actually defaulted on their loans. Um, and Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady out of the US had to bring a solution to the banking system that essentially allowed the banks not to have to write down the value of their loans to the trading level because if they did, the entire global banking system would have been insolvent. And it sounds ridiculous, but it's true because banks are so levered when a huge uh, write down like that occurred, um, their book value of equity would have been vaporized. It's, it's simple accounting. Uh, in the case of the Royal Bank of Canada, where I got my start, largest financial institution in Canada, no question, I ran through the math. And yes, if we had to write down our loans to market, uh, meaning from about the 100 cents on the dollar level that the loans were advanced at, the, the trading levels, although there wasn't huge volume taking place, was about 25 cents on the dollar. Um, we had about $4 billion in total uh, of, these, of these loans. And um, if they, uh, uh, on average, trading at 25 cents on the dollar, we would have had to write down $3 billion worth of debt. And um, our book value of equity was less than $3 billion. I know it doesn't sound like a lot of uh, a big volume today with all the, you know, throwing around trillions of dollars, but yeah, that would have meant Royal Bank of Canada was insolvent. Now what they did very quickly was they were able to say, okay, Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady came up with a brilliant plan where you would switch a five-year loan into a 30-year obligation and you would secure the principal uh, a material portion of the principal of the loan with zero coupon U.S. Treasury bonds. And that allowed you to not write down your debt to market and assume that your debt would accrete back to the hundred cents on the dollar because of the security of the U.S. Treasury zero coupon bonds. Brilliant solution. First exposure to what is this Ponzi called fiat? So... So you've been falling down the rabbit hole since 1988 and you I've just been, didn't realize. Well, it's, here's the funny thing. Yeah, I've been looking for the solution. I just never 
you know, I just said, so very quickly, Daniel, I mean, so you say to yourself, my God, I'm coming here. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm working in finance and the whole system's a farce and I can't, I'm under 30 years old or around 30. I'm not going to go to the newspapers and I'm not going to, you know, mm -hmm. ring the bell and cause a bank run. But yeah, that's, that's the fact that uh, the Royal Bank of Canada, as well as all other money center banks globally. So manufacturer Hanover, uh, uh, the precursors, you know, Manny Hanny's not even around anymore, but uh, Bankers Trust, Manufacturers Hanover, Citibank for sure, JP Morgan, all the global money center banks in the US, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, Lloyd's, you name it, overseas, everybody had the same problem. Therefore, Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady for the health, if you will, or the functionality of the global banking system had to de design this bailout. It wasn't a bailout as much as a restructuring. It was brilliant, but it caused you to question, if banks can become insolvent that easily, how do they maintain their level of credit quality or confidence? How does the public have confidence in them? And it's very simple. It's the implied uh, backstop by governments. And how is that backstop uh, funded if, if ever they had to? And it's the printing of fiat. So yes, since 1988, I said, this system is suspect. I, I don't trust the system, but I don't know what the solution is. And I didn't fall down the gold. Uh, you know, I didn't jump immediately to gold. I, I, I understood the, um, the implications, but we know the, the shortcomings of gold. And, uh, and by the way, you know, there's other things in, that you can invest in in semi-hard assets, certainly. But yeah, I've been questioning the fiat system for over 30 years. And when Bitcoin comes along and presents itself, are you like, you know, you just reach out, want to give it a great big hug and, or, well, or does it take so you a couple of... I'll tell you how the story happens. So, so I, uh, I, I, very quickly, so I traded credit for 30 years, started on the sell side, meaning I worked for the, the banks, uh, the brokerage houses in uh, both uh, Bay Street in Canada, Wall Street in New York. And then I went to the hedge fund side. And uh, I lived the calamity of the great financial crisis, um, the hedge fund, uh, uh, from a hedge fund aspect. And, and luckily, like, you know, through good risk management and smart, smart uh, uh, positioning, we, we came through that quite, uh, quite well. And it turned out to be the defining trade of my career, uh, where I was able to say, okay, I'm done with uh, managing money. Um, and I sort of tried to retire, but you can never really retire, right? I mean, I'm not sure how you feel about it, but you know, once you get the markets in your blood, you just, you live it. You, you don't love managing other people's money. That's a, that's a pretty tough, uh, you know, it's a tough job. It's in order of priority. It's easiest to lose your own money. Then it's second easiest to lose a bank's money or an institution's money. And it's really darn awful when you lose money for clients and friends of family and people that have trusted you with their, uh, their capital. So I said, okay, that's done. And it, I, I think I tried to do uh, tried to retire in like 2015. And in 2016, um, I was approached by a gentleman from Montreal who uh, that's my hometown. I live in Toronto now, but uh, my hometown's Montreal. And I was in, I, I'm a partner in eight Irish pubs in Montreal and I happened to run across him in a pub in Montreal, one of my pubs. And uh, he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm into this thing called Bitcoin. And okay, I've heard of it. You know, he, did, he didn't say it's the, he didn't say it because everything that's wrong with the fiat system. He just said, this is Bitcoin. And I said, okay, so show me some stuff. And he showed me one page. And as an engineer, 
this page absolutely blew my mind. And that page was from tradeblock.com showing the blockchain in action with the blocks being formed, the mempool, the transactions taking place around the world. And I looked at this and I go, wait a minute, this is real. This is unbelievable. Like this is functioning system, living, breathing in front of me. And then I said, and it's the anti-fiat. This is what I've been looking for. So yeah, I, I found it in 2016 and that's when I tumbled hard down the rabbit hole, no question. And I ended up investing in this company and that company was called 3IQ and we were responsible for bringing the first Bitcoin listed uh, fund, closed end fund to a registered exchange in North America. Okay. So at the time, Grayscale still existed or already existed in the US, but it traded on the pink sheets. It's not a registered exchange vehicle. Our vehicle was accepted to trade on the Toronto Stock Exchange. After four years of fighting the regulators in Canada, we were approved to list that vehicle. And I'm proud of it because it's it enables Canadians to gain exposure to what I view as the, the most beautiful uh, technological innovation that I've seen in the financial markets in 30 years. So when you saw that site for the first time, was that like seeing that Bloomberg terminal Isn't for the first cool? time? You asked that question, it's exactly the same. It's like this is, so I'm an engineer. I, 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 I studied as an engineer, but never, uh, never truly went into pure engineering. I went and did an MBA in the US and I became a financial engineer. But I, I'm visual. I love to see this stuff. And yes, I saw it and I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah, again, it's, it, Daniel, I was like, this is not fake. This is not something. This is so real. It's not funny. And then we, I go into it. It's like, what? Decentralized? It's permissionless. It's, you know, it's divisible, scalable. It's like, it's the best thing that's ever come. And yes, I just went hard, very hard. Man, that's awesome. Wow, what a what a path! That's that's so great well, because, because you see everything for me has always been about credit. And in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, or I get like two thousand and seven to through through two thousand and nine, I really thought it was over, guys. I'm not kidding. Hmm. I'm I'm riding the train to work in the mornings. March two thousand and nine. I remember thinking we are right there. This is it's about not just to unravel; it's about to end. Citibank pref shares trading at twenty five cents on the dollar, dragging all the pref shares of Canadian banks down to that same level. And you're thinking, like, you know that the that the leverage in the system won't support this, and you're just like, is today the day? Is today the day when it finally breaks? And, you know, people are getting margin calls left, right, and center. And it's not that you're selling what you want to, it's what you're selling what you can. And there was no, there was pandemonium in the markets. And 2007, 2008, I lived through it. We survived. Uh, I should say our fund survived, but also the system survived. But all the system did was transfer leverage from the financial system, the global banking financial system onto government balance sheets. Very simple. So everything that caused the crash or the the un uh, the deleveraging and the uh, unwind in 2007 2008 still exists. It just happens to live on government balance sheets right now. So that's why I look to credit. I've always looked to credit, and I'm continuing to look to credit as the precursor of the next big unwind. What signs are you looking for? 
specifically? So, well, you start in the plumbing. You always start in the plumbing of the system. So <laughs> there's always things like, you know, repo markets, uh, you, you know, the things, repo, TED spread, uh, bank swaps, uh, you know, interbank, uh, uh, interbank uh, freezing of, uh, you know, don't trust your counterparty. <laughs> Everything mm, that's a big happens, one right? for me. Oh, yeah, yeah, man. It's just like, you know, you, you just feel it. You're like, wait a minute. I used to trade with these guys and I knew they were good for their word. And now you don't know if the trade's going to settle. And if it does, you know, is it, it, do you have a contract out against them? Are you relying on them for some sort of contract that materially impacts your position if they are not able to fulfill their obligation? And it becomes a question of whack-a-mole and you're just like, you know, you just know this system, which is always built on leverage is dom is, is susceptible to the domino effect one guy falls causes another guy to fall all of a sudden the protection you thought you had evaporates because that's no longer a claim against a good counterparty and yeah you've lived it yeah that 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 was the biggest red flag when when counterparties would stop accepting each other's names at oh, yeah. certain like a, if you did a foreign exchange uh, currency options deal and you matched yeah um you know yeah, goldman's with i don't know sumitomo bank mm-hmm. you know on a four-month option and goldman turned around and say yeah no we we can't do that trade because we we don't see sumitomo as a as a good counterparty oh, then yeah. you go and you try and find a switch somebody that would do accept both names but you're like all right, something's up then, um, oh, yeah. because what's what do they see coming down the pike that that nobody else does with that particular counterparty? Correct. And what does that say about Japan? Just in oh, this yeah. example, mm-hmm. you know, and it's and imagine if you're not part of that system though, you're managing a hedge fund that's uh, you know you rely on the liquidity that the street provides you or liquidity they rely on you. It's all a you know. It, it, the amount of uh, netting in derivatives that takes place is, is it's, it's wonderful until one of those nets don't balance or one counterparty doesn't stand up to it. And then it's just, you know, cascading, bang, 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 bang down. And uh, so that's, yeah, that's the plumbing of the system, the dangerous things you see, uh, you know, it sounds, did you know, and I'll just replay the, t- the great financial crisis. You remember when Jim Cramer went crazy on the, on the tube in, uh, CNBC. It was in August of 2006, sorry, 2007. And he's like, uh, the Fed doesn't get it. They just don't get it. I, you know, and he calls it and a rant. It was the Jim Cramer rant. And he needed the Fed to come and raise rates. And everyone thought as soon as, excuse me, raise rates, they need to cut rates. And as soon as the Fed cut, everybody would assume that the party could continue. But what happened was the equity market assumed the Fed cutting rates was the, you know, was the tonic that the markets needed and it rallied to new highs, but the credit markets still called baloney. Okay. And none of the plumbing in the credit markets was working yet. The equity markets were, were going to new highs again. Okay. And as a credit guy, you're just like, the equity guys don't get it. They're just so out of touch. They and, and sure enough, you know, with three months later, things were imploding. Uh, Bear Stearns, which was at 120 bucks a share, was down, you know, 50 bucks a share and eventually cleared to JP Morgan at two bucks a share. But I remember one of the quotes was, as, uh, as Bear Stearns stock trades, so trades the Dow. And uh, it's sure enough, that was the case because, 
you know, everyone was worried about Bear Stearns and then Lehman Brothers and the counterparty risk that, you know, Lehman failed. And then suppose you had, uh, suppose you owned default protection on Bear Stearns, but Lehman, you had bought the protection from Lehman. All of a sudden, that protection doesn't exist, right? Because right. Lima's done, they're baked. And, and the whole system just, which relies on leverage and counterparty um, uh, considerations. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely destruction. Let's go down the rabbit hole of, of a credit default swap. Sure. And what, what that looks like and how that come to be. And then we'll go another another layer, which I think you'll probably enjoy going into. Um, sure. But let's let let's start with that. You know, credit default swap. How was this thing structured? Okay, well, let's start with who designed it. Um, it to the best of my knowledge, um, there was a brilliant young lady, a youngish lady. I'm going to call her young lady compared to to me, uh, Blythe Masters, who. Uh, you may got, you guys may know Danny Masters from uh, CoinShares. Uh, do you recognize Danny Masters, big Brit guy? They just in, uh, the, Danny Masters just issued CoinShares stock on the uh, some some exchange over in uh, in uh, uh, Europe. But anyway, Blythe Masters, um, J.P. Morgan, they came up with the concept of credit default swaps (CDS), which essentially is insurance on a reference asset okay uh for a given name so uh you pick a name it could be anything from a corporate borrower to a uh a state borrower and there's even country uh credit default swap markets but all it is is it's just like a credit spread is for a bond in that if you take a 10-year bond and you compare that to uh, a corporate bond and you compare it to the yield on the 10-year treasury and that spread, which compensates you for mostly for credit risk, but also compensates you for illiquidity risk, call it liquidity risk um, and, and other components. But those are the two main ones, uh, credit risk and liquidity risk. That spread, which relies on a physical bond outstanding that trades relative to a U.S. treasury can be changed into a contract that starts as a five-year contract, doesn't need uh, to actually have a physical bond behind it. It refers to a physical bond, but you can have tons of insurance contracts written between various sophisticated financial institutions that require ISDAs uh, to trade the default risk, essentially the premium on that given name. And what you have more than anything is a market, excuse me for a sec, if that's my phone, my daughter, <laughs> Jay, can you tell Sammy, I can't answer the phone. I'm on, that's my, so this is my daughter saying something to your daughter. Okay. Daniel, this is, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. uh, how, how it is supposed to happen. Your daughter wasn't able to uh, start. So that's my daughter, Samantha. She's 19 years old and she's or 20 years old. And she's at university. She tried to FaceTime me. So I don't even know how to turn it off. I have an Apple watch, but I don't even know how to turn it off. Okay. So don't worry. Credit, none of that will be edited out. That, please that's don't, please don't. Yeah. This is technology. This is so beautiful. Okay. So, so here's the cool thing. Um, credit default swaps were able to create entire markets and a very efficient one-year, two-year, three-year, four-year, five-year tenors on 
default protection on various names. And what did it allow the world to do? It could set up credit indices, 125 names that go into high, sorry, high grade index based on five-year CDS credit default swaps that are established in a trading market amongst hedge funds, amongst big institutional players. And it allowed credit indices to be formulated that weren't otherwise available to the market because not every company has a five-year, a four-year, a three-year, a two-year, and a one-year bond outstanding that trades as liquid as the credit default swap market, okay? It's a beautiful invention. People, Warren Buffett, he, he disses it because Warren Buffett doesn't really understand corporate credit. Okay. So let's, let's be honest about Warren. He's really, really good with equities, but doesn't quite grasp. He says, oh, CDS, that's like buying fire insurance on someone else's house and then going out and setting their house on fire. Okay, Warren, that's one way you can interpret it, but it's not even close to how it's used properly and how it's used to hedge and manage risk and create credit indices that thereby create new buyers for credit that otherwise wouldn't have existed. Okay. So yeah, the guys, the ladies at JP Morgan were brilliant in setting this up and an entire market uh, evolved and developed around the, uh, the creation of these credit default swap products. They are for very sophisticated investors. They, you can't trade CDS. You remember the, the movie with Michael Burry, the big short, like he, he wanted to short all this stuff, but he couldn't get ISDAs with his counterparties to be able to, uh, to prove that he had the, the collateral and the wherewithal to participate in this, in this, uh, uh, mega game. Uh, I'll call it a mega game. It's it's much more than that. It's a mega risk management platform. And where does the rating agencies fit into all so of that's this? Okay, that's all good. I mean, the rating agency, let's say they rate a certain bond. And when you need to come to market uh, as a corporate borrower, you generally need to credit rating agencies, uh, Moody's and S&P. Why? Because it's just it's developed that way. There's investment policy guidelines that are set up on behalf of uh, pension funds and large investors that say you can own cre a credit rating down to the level triple B, but as soon as it passes the level triple B, it becomes non-investment grade. Well, isn't that funny? Non-investment grade, they don't even consider the price, but anything below triple B becomes non-investment grade or in my term, high yield because it becomes double B and single B and triple C rated credits that are pejoratively called junk bonds or whatever. So the rating agencies still play that game. Um, they get paid for these ratings and generally they do a pretty good job of it. What the rating agencies really, really crapped the bed on was rating these structures that were leveraged super senior structures using CDS. And you got the alchemists in there that created all these different assets, uh, these pools of structured super senior uh, devices that allowed people to pretend they had triple A exposure. But even the market would tell you, oh, S&P Moody says it's triple A rated the top level of the pool, but it's trading at treasuries plus 200 basis points. You're getting a single or a, a double B type of return for a supposed triple A credit risk. I mean, you know, they're in this, the gig, right? Like someone was wrong and it was the rating agencies. Okay. It's very simple. They, their analysis of what the true AAA, the top exposures, the top pools of this, of these structures uh, was not AAA. And that's when things start to unwind because people can lever this AAA 
uh, tranche and using leverage. And then all of a sudden they get a cash call and they have to sell and there's no buyers. And, you know, it all comes cascading down. And it starts with a, um, a rating that uh, you could definitely call out as a, a biased or a misinformed rating of true risk. And why does that happen, Daniel? Really, quite honestly, it happens because rating agencies want to make money and the underwriters want to make money and the underwriters make money when they can bring product to market. And to bring product to market, they had to pretend that the top tranches of these structures were AAA. And that's the incentive structure right there, isn't it? The um, For the fact oh, that there's only, there are only two rating there's agencies three. there's three really i mean then there's then there's four there was fitch i mean fitch fitch mm-hmm. battles for some sort of they're good in certain areas uh, that uh s&p and moody's but yeah the big two are s&p and moody's and you know um it, it it's a problem it's been a problem since the, and it, the, here's the problem it's even worse is you tell me that somehow they subjectively rate a company double b or a risk double b which is in their terminology non-investment grade and we haven't even talked about price. What if the price is, mm-hmm. or a yield equivalent of 60% per annum? I don't know. It sort of sounds like that could be investment grade to me, but you know, because why? Because you know, at that type of return or anticipated return, there could be some investment qualities to it. This is what happens when you have subjective opinions on risk that uh, do not carry any connotation to price or true risk return pricing. And they're listed as well, right? They both companies. They're they're, they're public companies. So the, the S&P is owned. They're they're both owned by. They're within bigger uh, uh, conglomerates, correct? So you have that incentive structure to make your quarterly numbers as well. It's you know the, okay, the whole so fear. Ponzi. Throw another one out at you. So all the guys that were working as credit rating analysts, they actually didn't want to work for the credit rating agencies. They wanted <laughs> to work for the Wall Street bankers, right? Right. So what's their best way of getting right. a favor with the Wall Street bankers? Oh well, I'll give you a good rating here, and maybe next time you have an interview opening for uh, for a credit structured product guy, do you think you could consider me? Uh, this is totally. Uh, guys, this is maybe made up in the world of FOSS, but uh, in the world of FOSS, I'll tell you that, yes, that is definitely, uh, there is definitely some stuff there. Of course. It's, that's, that it's, in itself is human nature. That, Daniel, you, know. you, you don't want to work for a credit rating agency. You're your second class citizen compared to the investment bankers, right? So what do you do? You, you, try and, uh, you, you try and curry favor with the investment bankers so you can get a job there. Oh man. So did you see, did you see it coming? Like, uh, 07, so 08? The first I did actually, and I'm not going to say I have these uh, crystal balls, but the first major credit event that occurred globally actually happened in Canada. And it was a, a structure called asset back commercial paper that, uh, that stopped functioning in 2007 to, you know, all, almost over a year in advance of the true credit crisis, which was 2008. And then the bottom of the, in 2009, March, 2009. But yeah, in 2007, a very material market in Canada stopped functioning overnight. And that was called the asset backed commercial paper market, which was based on lo and behold, credit default swaps of investment grade US companies that were five-year swaps packaged into 90 day structures for commercial paper that continually had to roll 
because mm-hmm. 90 days does not equal five years. You continually had to roll that 90 day. Uh, and why did people buy this asset back commercial paper? Well, because they were getting a whole four and five and six basis points per year more than bank sponsored uh, commercial paper. And what was the real math behind it? Well, these, these bonds or these structures that were trading at 100 cents on the dollar should have probably been trading at about 87 cents on the dollar, but the Wall Street investment banks were taking out 13 points. Okay, no kidding, 13 points of risk. So you do a billion dollars of that, and what's 13 points or 13% of a billion dollars? That's $130 million of fees for every billion that's issued into Canada. And they're saying, okay, and, and you'll get an extra six basis points, when in fact there should have been an, an extra 13, 13 points on, uh, on a five-year, so call it like there should have been another 300 basis points in there, not not six basis points. But where's the VIG? The VIG goes to the Wall Street underwriter. And who's the stupid one at the table? Well, it's the buyer. It's not Wall Street will design anything for you if you're, if you're willing to pay the price. So these, these guys uh, had this paper. There was 32 billion of it in Canada. And one institution in Canada owned half of it. The pension fund of the province of Quebec owned 16 billion of this asset-backed commercial paper. That's equal to 10% of their assets at the time. And the case stopped rolling overnight. The case <laughs> stopped rolling. And those, those, that piece of paper went from a hundred cents on the dollar, right down to 80 cents on the dollar with very little trade and bottomed out at around 25 cents on the dollar. This was calamity. This was $32 billion dollars. In Canada, those are huge sums of money that lost 75% of its value in a matter of months, only because the market stopped functioning, a big player stopped rolling its exposure. And this is what happens in a leverage system. As soon as you stop rolling your, your exposure, other buyers are like, whoa, what am I missing? Much like you said about Sumitomo. Oh, what am I missing? If these guys are stopped rolling their exposure, you know, what is wrong? And that was the precursor to the global financial crisis. So Canada stopped functioning even before the rest of the world. Now, no one cares where Canada is or what they're doing. We can barely find Canada on a map, you know, but that happened in Canada. So yeah, it was, it was scary in Canada. Um, And one of the big things that that scared the case from rolling their uh, their paper that's the case of Depoy Plasmans Quebec that's the big Quebec pension fund was it had exposure to US subprime now in re- reality it had about 2% exposure to US subprime so out of $100 it was mispriced by 13 bucks to begin with so it should have been trading at 87 and then if you totally take out all us subprime exposure it's down to 85 cents on the dollar okay full stop it traded to 25 cents on the dollar and therein was was one of our best trades i've ever made in our lives because we were able to buy it at 25 cents on the dollar there was so much of it we were able to pick and choose what exposure we wanted and eventually the bonds the restructured bonds did go back to 100 cents on the dollar man that must have been crazy picking through all of that. I wasn't big enough. Our fund was like 400 million bucks and there was 32 billion. 
uh, available to purchase at 25 cents on the dollar. Like all of it wasn't for sale, but it was like, and I had to recycle this stuff. Right. And I'm like, Oh my God. And so there's a story here's, so what happened was they got restructured into these notes and you might appreciate this. I, th- I know you will appreciate this. They got restructured into these generic notes called Mav notes, JP Morgan, of course. And uh, JP Morgan was hired because everybody in New York has a way bigger brain than Canada. So Canadians hired JP Morgan to, uh, to restructure the notes that JP Morgan originally started selling into Canada. And uh, they restructure them and they're, they're these generic uh, tranches, but then there's certain things that don't fit into the tranches, including us subprime exposure. They traded as tracking notes. Okay. So, Here's a war story. So one of these packages comes up for sale and, uh, you know, they were called A1s, A2s, Bs, and Cs where the, the, the tranches, everyone knew the prices of those. Okay, bang, bang, bang. You bang, bang out those prices. But then there's some of these tracking notes. And generally, you know, you get to know some of the tracking notes. But there was this esoteric tracking note that it was included in this pack, package that I'd never seen before. And I said, okay, well, look, I don't know what it is. There's $1.6 million worth of it, face value. I'm, I need to put a price on it because in bond trading, you need to have a, a, a price as a contract. So I'll put $25 on $1.6 million. It's not $0.25 cents on the dollar. It's $25, $25 that I could have reached into my pocket and put on that contract. So I'm buying $1.6 million of exposure for $25 out of my pocket. It's not out of my pocket, but you get the gist. And I've, I assume it's worth zero because I've never seen it. So I'm putting it into the system where you match the Q-sips up and everything. I go home that night. And I say, geez, I better figure out what I just bought. Imagine if it's a lottery ticket. <laughs> so I go home and you, you can find all this stuff on the web. It's, it's there. You just had to do your digging. And I do some research and I'm like, okay, I, I see the Q-sip. I look at it. These are Quebec immigrant loans. Okay. Quebec immigrant loans. I think they're, they, I, I'm sort of excited. Maybe they're worth more than zero. And then I see they're guaranteed by the province of Quebec. And I'm like, what? I just bought $1.6 million of Quebec risk for 25 bucks. Okay. And it matures in six months. So there's a trade for you. I, in six months, I made $1.6 million out of $25. I don't know what the return on that is but it's got to be like <laughs> grillions of percent. Okay. And it's only because you're in the game and you're playing and someone just wants to get these off their balance sheets. And they just like, just give me anything. And I did, I gave them something. I gave them 25 bucks. Cause I literally thought it was worth $0. And it turned out to be worth $1.6 million in six months. But here's the fun part is you go out and you're like, I better find myself more of these. Like, I was going to say, <laughs> okay, so what, but then you can't, you can't be too fancy, right? Because you go out and you have some to offer, but you're, you're trying to frame it. So you don't get lifted. Right. So you're like, yeah, I just bought some of these. Uh, let, let's make the market 10, 12, you know, 10 cents on the dollar to 12 cents on the dollar. Uh, but really I don't want to get lifted because anyone that knows the game is like sold to me at 12. And you're like, Jesus, I didn't want to sell. I just wanted to buy, you know, I wanted to frame the market. So anyway, that it, it's a real game, right? And then you're trying out there and you're like, uh, yeah, the bid works for really good size, but the offer is a little flaky. Like, you know, you know, and you've played this game before, right? Anyway, we were able to get more in and uh, all it is, is again, being in the trenches, you know, buying stuff that's a fire sale and you, you're putting capital at risk because you're not just buying that, you're buying other stuff that's not guaranteed to go up in price either. But to insert yourself in that game is absolutely 
Well, it's what makes capitalism work. It's it's because you have these four sellers or these sellers that are selling stuff. They don't know what they're selling. They didn't know what they were buying and now they don't know what they're selling. And maybe their boss just tapped them on the shoulder and said, you know what? I need you get rid of this stuff because I just don't ever want to deal with this stuff again. And therein lies opportunities in markets. And uh, yeah, if I had been somewhat crooked, I would have taken that trade and not put it in my hedge fund. I would have just put it in my personal account, right? And just said, okay, well, here's here these bonds. Uh, yeah, let's just put these in Foss's personal family trust. I didn't do that. They, they stayed in the hedge fund and the hedge fund was able to post, you know, some some gains based on that uh, on that tr particular trade. But let me tell you, uh, Daniela, that these are when you think the world's unraveling, when you're able to, people are just selling anything just to get it off their balance sheets. Imagine how many just went unnoticed. So right. some, you know, it, it never goes unnoticed because what happens is these are all bought, the people that bought this stuff are short-term investors that think they own as the rating agencies told them, something rated AAA, when in fact, they're much closer to single B ratings. And then they're not even allowed to own them because, right. oh, I was an investment grade buyer. And then the rating agency comes and tells me they're non-investment grade. So I need to sell. Isn't that rid ridiculous? Mm -hmm. And that's what happens. So, you know, it doesn't go unnoticed. I promise you, like when someone says I hit the bid, you just, if you put your hand out and you just happen to be the, the hand that gets hit by that fly, um, hey, you own some stuff. And chances are, if you're, if you're good at your game, you're buying it at the proper price. But sometimes you overpay. Sometimes you buy stuff you don't even know. And I did that in my career as well. I, I thought I owned parts of structures that, uh, that, that were much, uh, that, 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 you know, I, I did the research and I'm like, oh my God, why did I just pay that? You know, I'm, I'm retarded. And then you try and turn around and, and off, offload your risk. And you, again, it's, uh, you know, it's a bit of an art. You, you can't panic sell. You just have to sort of say, yeah, okay, well, uh, last trade was 85. So I think the market's 83.5, but uh, yeah, don't, don't test the bid. I'd really prefer that you come in and be a better buyer, not, not a seller. You know what I mean? So... <laughs> Ah, oh, yeah, the good old days. Uh, yeah, yeah. All, all the games. And, and I remember actually, because the banks carry ratings as well, and which is still crazy, because if all of these banks are insolvent, as you, you came to realize many, many moons ago, uh -huh. I still remember Tordom, the great Canadian bank, Toronto Dominion. That's where I started on my, uh, on my, on my uh, sell side. Right. Triple A rating. Oh, yeah. all the Canadian banks and, and, and Toronto Dominion actually did something really well in, uh, in the Latin American debt crisis. They actually did not have Latin American debt exposure. They were one of the only North American banks with zero Latin American debt exposure because their chairman said, I don't believe we should be lending to these companies, countries. And he was smart. And yeah, they were AAA rated. That's correct. But really, they were still time. They're still time 25 times levered. To their equity, uh, to their equity uh, cushion, twenty-five times levered. Even Toronto Dominion had their problems because they had lots of exposure to what's called TMT, telecom, media, and technology companies that were like Celex and all these other companies. That uh, well, you know how the Celex uh, story ended, right? And so that's banking. Um, and why do they have that AAA rating again, Daniel? Very simple, because of the implied backstop by the government of Canada, which was also rated AAA. And therefore, you, you're allowed to give your banking system a AAA rating. 
And what's going on right now in Canada? Because this has just been a crazy year for you guys. That that just the printing is. Yeah, like- so we're we're off the charts printing. So let's let's refer to two things. First of all, I'll just say what's going on in Canada. We got we got smacked. Uh, you know, our energy sector used to be a source of pride. Now it's a source of uh, hindrance. People will argue that our real estate market's way overvalued. I don't happen to think that's the case, but uh, I don't want to argue about subtleties. Um, but, you know, some of the biggest pillars of financial strength in Canada turned into weaknesses. Banks don't typically securitize much of their real estate exposure like they do in the U.S. and therefore are sitting on a bunch of real estate uh, exposure right now that you could argue is, uh, I don't know, somewhat suspect. You know, these big office buildings aren't quite as uh, occupied as they uh, as they might have been prior to the COVID. But what has really happened, and this is key because let's look at the credit default swap market on sovereign nations. So Canada still maintains a triple A credit rating by S&P. Funny, or not funny, but strangely, the USA is only double A plus. Now in the credit default swap market, the USA for five years, default insurance or default protection trades at 10 basis points. That's a double A credit by S&P. So logically, if Canada was triple A rated, we all know that the spread on Canada should be lower even than the, U- than the USA, right? Better credit, therefore less, less chance of default, therefore a lower premium to insure that debt. Um, sorry, full stop, Canada trades at 37 basis points in the CDS market. That's much closer to a single A rating, not a triple A rating. So who's right? Well, look, markets are always right. The S&P rating on Canada is wrong. You pointed out that Canada's debt per capita grew faster than any other G7 nation in the world in the latest COVID crisis. And in my opinion, this CDS, the default swap markets are correct. And Canada has some a real reckoning, okay? We are not the AAA credit that Pierre Trudeau, our prime minister, may even understand. I doubt he even understands what a AAA credit rating implies. I'm certain he's horrible at math. I mean, he's proven that time and time again. The default swap markets are telling you that Canada is a single A-rated credit. So you'd say, what are other single A or triple B rated credits out there? And you look at things like Italy and Portugal and their CDS ratings or or levels are closer or sometimes even narrower than Canada, even though they have a worse credit rating. But what do they have that Canada doesn't have? And you know the answer, it's the ECB. The ECB will do whatever it takes to maintain the liquidity within the mid-European countries, the former pigs. And... You know, that's reflected in the CDS market, but Canada doesn't have that backstop. We have the Bank of Canada, but, you know, on an apples to apples basis, the country of Canada is slightly, just slightly more important than the state of California. The GDP of the state of California and the GDP of Canada, the country, are about the same. So put that in your calculator and say, okay, If you are a G7 nation like Canada, you don't have an ECB backstop. You have a a government that just thinks that money can be printed ad nauseum. And I'm worried for my kids. 
how does this unravel, man? Like that. That's, oh, I know how that's... it unravels. I think what you meant is how does it solve itself. I know how it unravels, okay? Because I've seen it many, many times. It it unravels very quickly. Risk happens fast. Um, it unravels because people stop rolling their debt. International lenders to Canada just say, "Hey, full stop. I don't need Canada. You're you're done, man." And Canada's like, "Well, we can't support ourselves by ourselves because you know there's not enough domestic uh, um, uh, investing investment money in Canada." And you're just like, "Oh, my CDS all of a sudden." starts widening and people say, oh, oh, the CDS is widening and therefore uh, it's even more risky. And then there becomes more buyers of protection and sellers of debt. The two are the same. You buy protection, meaning you want to reduce your exposure to credit risk, or you sell your debt because you want to reduce your exposure to credit risk. And it becomes circular. Wow. That's a big pill to swallow. I'm, I'm afraid I've seen it so many times. Look, I, in my Twitter handle, and I'm, I'm too smart by a half here, okay? Uh, that's a bond trading expression. I'm too smart by a half because in my Twitter handle, I put, uh, I put CDS for Lehman Brothers in 2006 traded at nine basis points. And it did. In 2006, credit default insurance on Lehman Brothers traded at nine basis points. It cost you $9,000 a year to insure $10 million worth of debt. Three years later, that insurance contract was worth six million bucks. Okay, that's what happens when CDS starts jumping, and and there's a term in the CDS market. It's called jump to default. When things start jumping to default, your nine basis points goes to ninety basis points, then it goes to nine hundred basis points, then it goes to nine dollars up front then it goes to you know and and all of these contracts all of a sudden everyone that was selling them and using leverage gets the taps on the shoulder hey dude you're not selling anymore you need to be at reverse your position you need to start buying and all of a sudden there's no more sellers of protection you're only buyers and that's when things gap and that's when the world starts understanding uh oh we're in big trouble and if you know this is country risk but when you have corporate credit risk you can run to the equity markets and you can try and hedge in the equity markets. And the poor equity guys have no clue what's going on. They just have no fucking clue. And, you know, the, the CDS players in the, in, the, in the corporate market are running to the equity market and either purchasing put options or purchasing vol. And the equity guys are like, what the hell's going on? I have no idea. This used to be so easy to trade this thing. And it's the credit markets that wade into this swimming pool. And the poor equity guys are just steamrolled because they, the credit guys are like multiple times bigger. And, and, you know, they just walk into a room and they're like, I need to hedge 4 billion. And oh, the market right now on, on 3 million is that, okay, well buy it all and just keep buying it. Cause I really need to get a position here and, and equity markets get steamrolled and short sellers, you know, cause if you short the equity, that's de facto credit protection, right? You short the equity. If the equity is worth, if the bonds aren't worth hundred cents on the dollar, the equity's worth the zero, right? Go out and short some equity. That's default insurance. So people create default insurance by shorting equity. And if you think about the equity guys, how many of them sitting there now have seen nothing but pretty much an up market their whole oh, career? Yeah. Well, even bond traders, right? Bond traders have, have seen nothing but interest rates falling for the last 30 years. 
And now finally interest rates say, Daniel, isn't this hilarious? The bond markets are, are, are unraveled because 10-year rates went from 60 basis points all the way up to one and a half percent in the 10 years. Come on, guys. When I started trading, 10-year US treasuries were trading at 14%. Good Lord. Like the, the rookies on the desk right now, and yeah, you know, and then the other side, the equity guys, well, they, they, if you ask most equity guys what the credit rating on the companies that they trade are, first of all, they say, what's a credit rating? Oh, uh, maybe I should probably care about this. Yeah, you're right. Since credit is a prior claim in the capital structure than equity. So where does a country run to if this starts unraveling? Like you say, you know, it, they don't <laughs> see, they don't, that's the problem. It's done. There's no one else to run to the financial system ran to the countries. That's it. There's nobody above that. That's why there's Bitcoin. Bitcoin is default protection on a basket of sovereign credits, full stop. Okay. The little man can own it. You don't need an ISDA. You don't go out and you don't sell it. You own this as insurance that the system's going to unravel. And it is so cheap right now because I've done a study that actually used the CDS market on sovereigns and calculated the unfunded and funded liabilities of each country and put it as a cumulative uh, basket. And that calculation today is worth between 110,000 and 160,000 US dollars per Bitcoin. That's based on current CDS rates. As CDS starts to unravel or meaning that it starts to panic and those spreads widen, the intrinsic value of Bitcoin by that model, which I have a tremendous amount of confidence in, goes higher. So Peter Schiff and all these other guys can say Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. And I'll say, hey, dude, it has tons of intrinsic value to me. It is default protection on a basket of sovereign credits. Oh, the intrinsic value thing. <laughs> you must get triggered every time you see that. I'm okay with it because, you know, everyone has an opinion. What, what's that expression? Like opinions are like sphincters. Every oh, arsehole has yes, one, right? So, yes. so it's okay. <laughs> you know, you're allowed. My opinions aren't always right. I mean, I just happen to do more math than most people do. So now you've, you've led us very nicely to, to Bitcoin and, and how you look at it and how you try and explain it to, to people mm -hmm. and to people that might be tuning in now and, and listening to this and trying to figure out Bitcoin or if they've been around the market for a year or two and might be tempted to, I'll use air quotes, take profit, which I hate. Um, what, what, what would you say to, to those kind well, of people? So I, look that, at, I look at, so there's two things. So like I'm a trader by, by initiation, okay? I'll have core positions, and I'll always trade a core position, but if my core position is a long conviction, meaning I'm long that as a, uh, as a conviction trade, I'll never get below a certain amount of exposure in my book. It doesn't mean I'm always just a buyer. Hey, you got to trade the volatility of markets because, you know, that's what provides fluidity in markets. You, you know, you don't want to get 100% of your exposure and then not have any more bullets to, uh, to uh, manage your own risk and, 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 and put an opinion in the market, meaning, you know, you want to sell some or buy some. So, yeah, I'll have a core position and I'll trade that core position. I'm not advising everybody to do it. I would tell you that I've taken 32 years of trying to figure out if I'm a good trader or not. And the only thing I can tell you is I never blew up. 
which meant I did actually manage risk uh, on a on a fairly good basis. Um, when I was wrong, I reversed position. I didn't put my, you know, stick in the sand and just say, no, no, I'm absolutely right here. And then, you know, get carted out on a trade. Um, you know, there's plenty of people that have that conviction on the wrong side of the trade. In the long run, they could be right. But right now, for risk management purposes, I think Bitcoin is the perfect anti-fiat, okay? Every single fiat has the same problem, every single one. And you may say, okay, well, gold is a solution to that. And I'll say, yeah, I agree with that for 5,000 years. But now gold is run its course because if you own gold and that's your protection and the world finds out that you actually own that gold in your house, um, I don't know. I'm not so certain I want to have all that gold in my house. So then you say, I'll keep it at a bank. And then you worry about the bank confiscating your gold. So would you rather own gold or Bitcoin? I don't want this world to unravel, but I will use the best protection mechanisms that I have to, uh, to hedge the risk that it does. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Very well said. So I want to talk about uh, 3IQ and QBTC sure. because there's a lot of... Um, misunderstanding or lack of education probably in in the market uh well amongst the plebs and uh, mm-hmm. and the hornets of of how how these funds work like a qbtc okay. or a gbtc yeah and the the big premium debate that uh, people are talking about mm-hmm. so first of all could you explain to us you know what what does it mean uh, a closed end fund sure so it's a great question um so a closed end fund typically um uh, purchases makes an initial purchase of a number uh, of a given amount of assets. So let's say it buys a hundred percent of something. Okay. So this is called the something fund and you bought a hundred dollars worth of something. And this something has these assets that now trade on a market in a closed basis. That hundred something is out in the market for evaluation. Is that a hundred something worth more? or less than a hundred. And that's for the open market to decide if you have more sellers, if you have people that want to sell that or short it versus people that want to buy it and push it above or below its intrinsic value. That's what happens in a closed end fund. It, it, you know, in theory, there should be a lot of smart people saying, well, if it's worth a hundred, I'm not going to pay 400 for it, but I'm also not going to let it dip down to 50 because it has a value of 100. And that's what a a closed end fund, it is subject to the whims of the supply and demand of the open market, typically an exchange. An ETF, on the other hand, and I want to go there quickly, an ETF is a creation redemption vehicle that creates or redeems shares based on the underlying security or the underlying claim in the fund every day at 4pm. So if it's Bitcoin, and you've created a demand for incremental demand for $50 million worth of Bitcoin that day, just because of the shares that are either bought or sold in the market uh, and netting out at the end of the day, you need to buy 50 million. Well, then that fund goes out and buys $50 million worth of Bitcoin at 4 PM that day. And you've created $50 million worth of shares. And the ETF should trade way, way, way more efficiently than a closed end Bitcoin fund. And you see that you saw GBTC, the Grayscale Trust at times traded as high as over 50% premium to the value of the Bitcoin that the fund held. Hey, I'm not going to tell you that 
people buying it at a 50% premium were, were doing it irrationally because they may have said, well, I'd rather own it on an exchange or a quasi exchange traded vehicle versus owning my own private keys. And, you know, maybe they're old geezers like myself that said, dang, I'm, I'm used to trading stocks. So if I'm used to trading stocks, let me get my Bitcoin exposure in, in a stock equivalent form. Um, if they were tax advantaged, like the QBTC, the Quebec, excuse me, the Canadian um, offering of Bitcoin that I was involved with, those units were available to be purchased in tax advantaged funds. That meant you had an incentive to go out and actually pay perhaps a little bit more than the underlying value because you got tax benefits from doing that. Oh, does that make sense? Therefore, that it could trade at a premium? Absolutely. There's tax arbitrage taking place. So when you see the, the premiums fluctuating, is that something as well that you look at as trading opportunity? Well, like arbitrage, like you just said? Oh, yeah, man. Oh, look, I mean, anytime something trades at a discount or a premium to its underlying intrinsic value, and I'll use intrinsic as real value here, okay, not as subjective value. This is real mathematical value. Guys in the hedge fund industry get excited, like my eyes. Uh, hey, dude, let's do some math quickly on QB, oh, sorry, GBTC. That was a $30 billion fund that at times traded at a premium in excess of 20%. 20% of 30 billion is $6 billion. $6 billion, Daniel, that are out there for the picking. For, for guys like me that are just like, they, they salivate over these dumb pricing inefficiencies, right? And what did it do? Well, it, it created an arbitrage opportunity that everyone was pitching where you borrow, uh, borrow Bitcoin from BlockFi or whatever, you take it over to Grayscale, you uh, deposit the Bitcoin with Grayscale, you, uh, you get the immediate mark-to-market raise of 20%, and you hope that by the time your six-month lockup rolls off, that that premium exists to some, to some extent that you can unwind the trade, and uh, you've actually locked in. But there's an initial 20% mark-to-market gain that all sorts of hedge funds salivate over, right? Particularly if you can lever that. You know, you lever it two or three times, that 20% turns into, well, multiples of 20%. And that little trade is, uh, is, is providing you some, uh, some alpha that, uh, you know, you can take to your investors and say, see how smart I am. And that sells. That, yeah. I think you've just nailed it there by saying you can take that to your investors and, you know, that's the game for the, the people always, on the street, is. It always is, but man. for the it's, plebs, for the plebs are on, you know, that are listening to the, um, to uh-huh. the, you know, I, you know, just dollar cost average. Is this the kind of thing that you would say to, to normal people rather than oh. touch these closed end funds or a so, mix? No, here's what I would say. Look, if, and let's use QBTC is uh, this QBTC was a precursor to a, a true ETF, a true exchange traded fund that has creation and redemptions each day because the uh, OSC did not think that Bitcoin is, uh, itself provided enough liquidity to allow for a pure ETF to exist. Okay, so they start by allowing you to do a closed end fund. And then the market shows that it's actually efficient. And then they say, okay, well, then I get comfort that you can actually do an ETF. And so that was a true, uh, look, I'm proud to be part of that. Uh, For the record, I've sold all my shares in 3IQ. Uh, I did sell them to uh, CoinShares. I mentioned Danny Masters, uh, CoinShares doing an issue in uh, in London or someplace where they took their uh, their asset management business uh, public. I'm proud of 
being part of that, I'm proud of allowing Canadians to invest in a vehicle that gave them exposure to Bitcoin on a tax advantage basis. Now you'll get these pure Bitcoin maxis, not your keys, not your, your coin and all that. And I'll just say, Hey, look, when the government's giving me 50% of my money to invest in Bitcoin, I'm going to take that 50%. Thank you very much. I mean, not your keys, not your coins that, that, that holds some water, but at the end of the day, 50% tax advantage holds water for me too. And I'm going to take that government subsidy because that's sort of what it was to invest in Bitcoin. Yeah, that's pretty awesome, man. And you're right. For people of of your generation or older that are just used to seeing that four-letter ticker you know, like that's stock where all symbol. the money is. I'm afraid. I love these kids that, that think that they're going to rule the world, but all the money right now exists in Wall Street brokerage houses and IRAs mm. and all that. Okay. Cause that's where the wealth has been stored. And it's much more comfortable to get a Zoomer to have comfort investing in Bitcoin when you don't have to walk them through this private key stuff and ledger and, you know, a wallet and all this stuff. It's really cool to see it as a technology. But look, where are you going to put your true risk? And by the way, you want to measure it against the rest of your portfolio as well, right? You, you, you could be short some things on the exchange. You could be short volatility against being long Bitcoin. You, you know, you want it all to appear in the same spot. You don't want to say, oh, I have my volatility over here and I have my Bitcoin in my safe. And, uh, you know, every night I sort of consolidate it on my own trading record. Well, okay, you could, but most people don't do it that way. I It's almost like the... Uh the two-pronged attack, right? At least we've got both sides of this going on. You know, it's it's being attacked on both sides. I will say I love the technology of being able to send Bitcoin Bitcoin around the world using my wallet around the world to an address that I've never met these people, okay? I've sent it to Australia. I've sent it to San Francisco. Never met them. It settles in 10 minutes. They get value in 10 minutes. Store a value in 10 minutes. Try doing that with a bank wire. Oh, yeah, well, you got to send me your bank instructions. And then the bank will say, well, what are you sending it to? Do you know this person? Uh, Well, no, and honestly, I don't. Well, this is anti-money laundering and everything. Look, you do it with Bitcoin. You send the address. It settles with no intermediary. Within 10 10 minutes around the world, it's the most beautiful technology I've ever seen. But am I going to keep all of my Bitcoin either in cold storage or on my wallet? No. Why? Because... Most of my investment portfolio is actually in a brokerage account because that's how I've always done it. That's how my dad did it. That's how my friends do it that are 50 years old. And that's where most of the money is in this world. I'm afraid I just don't want to embarrass anybody because it's accumulated. We've worked 50 years for it. We didn't just graduate university. You can hold everything you own on your wallet, on your phone after university because guess what? You don't actually have that much shit. No disrespect, but you just don't. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true. And uh, yeah, it's, it's good to, to, to hear someone of your generation, someone of your experience um, talking about it. And, uh, and you know, but, but seeing the big picture. So yeah, it's, um, no, it's a, lot to, a lot to chew on. There is. And, and I, uh, let's just wrap it up. I don't want to wrap anything up. I just got to get this, this trade, this Bitcoin trade that I've fallen hard down the rabbit hole is the best asymmetric trade I have ever seen in my 32 years of trading risk. Am I 100% certain? No. But if you do a probability analysis of the expected or potential outcomes 
you are a moron if you own zero Bitcoin right now. And I'll walk you through the math and I will call you a moron, okay? Because either you don't understand math or you're too intellectually lazy to understand what fiat really is. But if you own zero Bitcoin right now, you are a fool. And I want to talk to you actually about the, the news that came out last week about NYDIG because okay. I thought that was big news about oh, Ted Mathis joining the board of... Right. What are people missing about like his appointment there? Because it feels to me as though that, that news went a little bit understudied. Um, for me, it felt as though if you've got the guy that sits on the board of the, uh, what is it, ACLI, the, uh, the life insurance of like 95% yeah. of the, okay. the companies in the US, uh -huh. like, hang on a minute, this, is, this means that you're now going to have insurance companies, like you said, probabilities, risk assessment. Okay. These are, these are the I, companies I, that- So this is a great question, Daniel. And, and right. I don't want to jump. You and I speak the same language. So normally I try and but now I, I've been doing too much talking here because you understand, you've asked the questions, it, it piques my, uh, my desire to share this. Okay, let's start with what Bitcoin is and know what it's going to disintermediate. Okay, so what is Bitcoin? Let's use Michael Saylor's analogy. It's the purest form of digital energy ever created. Okay, why digital energy? Well, because it's a store of value that allows you to take your time or your effort or your work today and store it as energy for consumption in the future. It's a beautiful thermodynamic relationship. It comes from natural resources because, you know, you need to generate electricity for proof of work. The next step is that Bitcoin becomes, uh, excuse me, energy becomes priced in Bitcoin because it's natural. Energy producers selling valuable natural resources for U.S. debasing fiat currency is stupid. You know, you're selling valuable energy for a debasing currency. You're, you're being debased over time. So should energy companies actually take Bitcoin as payment? I think it's a natural uh, evolution. And once that happens, I think that Bitcoin becomes the de facto reserve asset of the world, not reserve currency, reserve asset. Okay, we'll still need transactional um, uh, platforms, but let's just say it becomes a reserve asset of the world. So what do you have then? You have the bottom of the funnel. You have energy companies creating energy and Bitcoin miners at the center creating digital energy. Then you'll have a top, what I term the top of the funnel. What is the top of the funnel? Well, that's all the things that Bitcoin standard is going to disintermediate. And that includes banking, insurance, custody, platforms, um, uh, you know, exchanges, uh, brokerage. So you have the top of the funnel. Now, who just joined NYDIG's board? Guys that play in the top of the funnel. Morgan Stanley, Mass Mutual, New York Life, George Soros. You're right. It's, it's, and what is the big value here? The bottom of the funnel is energy companies and everything. That's got a market cap of, you know, it's decent. Then you have the Bitcoin and Bitcoin miners. That's minuscule. And then you got the top of the funnel. This is where the big money is. This is where the New York life's. This is where Morgan Stanley, this top of the funnel is what's going to be dis disintermediated if they don't get their game together. It's crazy, isn't it? Oh, and it's I think crazy, but it's simple. It's simple because it's the formation of digital energy through to the distribution of that store of value amongst market players in all various asset management, insurance, banking, 
It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be beautiful because fiat is so awful. So the first big announcement of a life insurance company putting ba- uh, putting Bitcoin on its balance sheet sends a signal to the rest of the market, any so, institution around the world, all risk is off. I agree. I, you know, Mass Mutual's already done it to an extent. They bought, mm-hmm. a, what did they buy, $100 million? I mean, come on. They find $100 million in the couch of the chairman, right? I mean, <laughs> this is, you know, it's it's nothing. It's it's like, you know, they're trillion-dollar institutions, and, and, and $100 million is supposed to move the needle? It's 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 not. It's going to happen because one guy does it, and then one guy doing it saying, oh, boy, the one guy did it, now I'm going to have to do it, right? It's the theory of agents. It's uh, If the other guys aren't doing it, then I'm okay not doing it. But as soon as one of the guys do it, then – so so I'm involved in an energy company – Canada that's uh that's gonna we're we're gonna rock the world we are gonna mine bitcoin using flare gas okay pure absolute pollution that's ruining the ozone if it doesn't get burned it goes as methane and it burns the uh it it pokes holes in the ozone and if it does get burned it creates carbon footprints and all that stuff acid rain uh we're gonna mine bitcoin using waste energy not energy waste, excuse me, we're not going to waste energy, we are going to use energy waste. And we're going to mine Bitcoin. And we're going to change that narrative from Bitcoiners are boiling the oceans to Oh, my God, Bitcoiners are actually greening the environment using waste energy. Well, what are we doing? We're creating value out of energy that is not being effectively used in the ecosystem. And that ecosystem becomes digital energy, which is mining, and can be distributed out into the ecosystem of asset management and financial services. I love those projects when people bring that up. And there's a few going on out there, but it makes me just like, you know, Bitcoin cleans the air. It's you know, just... we don't want to wrap ourselves in the in the green uh, cape too, too much, but what are we doing? Yeah, well, we're taking waste energy you know, it's like cow farts, right? Cow, cow methane can blow holes in the, in the, in the environment, in the, in the ozone. Well, if you're flaring or if you're not flaring, if you're just venting methane out of, uh, you know, dirty gas uh, wells that can't capture any of the, uh, uh, the gas, they just want it for oil. Um, you know, you're doing the same, you're doing the same thing. And if you can take that and someday somebody will mine Bitcoin using cow farts, but right now we're going to do, uh, we're going to use that dirty energy and do that. I want to ask you something about uh, what you said about becoming a reserve asset, because obviously many of the folks that are listening that have been here for a long time, the reason that they buy Bitcoin is because they see it of the money as the future. And that's great. Believe that totally. And I just think that you framing it there is going to become the reserve asset. So if, if we were to reframe our mindsets, what does that mean for us in the future? If we're not, if we're not just purely holding just the money of the future, but we are holding the reserve asset of the future. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for so the whole? Again, of it, it will be. So think of it of, of uh, think of your Saudi Arabia or Russia right now, and you're actually you know you, you say you're getting paid in uh, in U.S. dollars, but really what you're doing is you're only you, you hold U.S. treasuries, right? Um, because those dollars have to go somewhere, and then you buy U.S. treasuries and. The whole trade deficit, that's how you fund your trade deficit with your foreign inflows of, um, of uh, capital. Uh, so the current reserve asset slash currency of the world is U.S. dollars. It's a very valuable position for the U.S. to be in. Um, it's worth a lot of money to them. 
uh, money or econ- uh, you know it's worth a tremendous uh, uh, boost to their uh, economic prowess and, and output but it's inefficient because it's not energy for energy and if you asked people in Russia to, you know straight up would you rather own digital energy or US treasuries I think the answer is pretty st- it's pretty simple and as soon as that happens those assets not currency the assets will gradually immigrate, if you will, or uh, move towards the, uh, the Bitcoin standard. But we know that Bitcoin as a platform is limited by its uh, processing ca- capacity, seven transactions per second or something at the base layer. But look, if it becomes the Lightning Network and everything that allows the asset to actually become a currency, hey, that's down the road. But for now, it can actually happen today. We don't need to say we, we can have a reserve asset and a reserve currency. The reserve currency could still be the US dollar because it transact the swift transactions and everything in the banking system. Hey, that's efficient to an extent, it's efficient. It's the best thing we have right now, but when Bitcoin and Lightning come, according to Jack Mallers, and I believe in the kid, then we will have the asset and the currency called Bitcoin. But right now let's just attack the asset side of it. What could that look like to an asset holder in five years from now? So I I like to break things down. If you haven't figured out, I'm a pretty simple math guy, okay? Global financial assets in the world, total global financial assets, including real estate in the world, is about $900 trillion by my calculations. $900 trillion. If you take uh, a portion of that 900 trillion and say how much would would a proper allocation be if you were a reserve asset of the world is it fair to say that should be five or ten percent i think that's pretty fair right it should be ten percent of global financial assets if you're in the reserve financial if you're the reserve financial asset of the world so ten percent of 900 trillion is 90 trillion dollars 90 trillion divided by 21 million whoa that's pretty exciting. That's the asymmetric <laughs> return distribution. It took us 12 years to get to 1 trillion market cap. How many years is it going to take us to get to two? To get to two? I, so one thing that you've heard that expression, you, you give it a target, but not a time, or you give a time, but not a target, right? So uh, I'm going to just, I'm going to bow out from my trading. And I'm going to just say within the lifetime of my kids, I am going to be very proud of passing Bitcoin as a store of value to them because I'm highly confident that it is the best store of value that I've ever seen in my life. And I am not going to argue over whether right now it should be trading at 55,000 or 65,000 or 25,000 bucks. It's all a rounding error, you monkeys, okay? Do some real math and look at the asymmetric return distribution. Very simple. I love it. Well, what um, I want to close this out with uh, some questions. Um, I'll ask you the, the, the last question in a minute. Um, but let's get into pubs, your other, your, your other, your, your other passion in life, it would wow. seem. What, uh, what, what led you down that oh, rabbit man, hole? It's a, it's a great, uh, sort of a great story. My wife wouldn't agree. Um, my, one of my buddies from uh, Montreal, uh, he was a carpenter and he's, he was asked to do leasehold improvements on a, uh, on a new, uh, a new project, which was going to be a pub. And, uh, the, the owner of the pub uh, call, um, asked him, well, instead of me paying you cash, do you want to become an equity owner? And I was working on Bay Street in Toronto at the time. And uh, my buddy from Montreal calls me up and he says, you know, Foster, um, I have this chance of being a partner in, in this pub. 
and I say, uh, well, let's run through the, you know, the risk parameters, uh, location. Yeah. Uh, financing. Got it. Uh, uh, you know, do you trust your partner? Yes. Blah, blah, blah. Um, I say, then we'll do, do it. Equity makes the world go round. You know, I'd rather take a, a potential, uh, equity position in a pub and, um, and, uh, and, you know, be a partner in the business equity is capitalism. And so he did. And, uh, lo and behold, the financing end of the, of the business, it was from the Royal Bank of Canada, uh, got pulled at the last minute and they needed other investors. And I stepped up and I put my money where my mouth is without telling my wife though. So never do that boys without telling <laughs> your wife. Okay. Because, uh, uh, that, that's a, that was a mistake, but, um, yeah, uh, eight, eight pubs later, 25, you know, 25 years later and eight pubs from that one pub. Uh, I'm still a proud uh, partner in the business and it's been tough, right? Uh, COVID is mm-hmm. not kind to any uh, pub owners anywhere in the world. Uh, we probably are going to lose two, at least two, if not all of them, but let's hope we don't lose all of them. My buddy's put his 25 years of, he changed from a carpenter to a, uh, to a pub operator. And I really hope that, uh, that we have some residual value there uh, for him and his family. But luckily he became an investor in three IQ as well. So he diversified his, uh, his Bitcoin or his holdings into some Bitcoin uh, exposure. And that was a, uh, a beautiful, it, it's been a, a good outcome on the, on the Bitcoin side for sure. So yeah, that's my pub story. Uh, look, pubs are a tough business, but man, oh man, are they fun, right? Uh, so many good relationships are formulated in pubs. And uh, if you make it work and you, you watch your, uh, your costs uh, diligently, it's not an easy business, but it can be a, a, a quite a, a stable and rewarding business over time. Not yeah. good during, not, not good during, during COVID though. <laughs> that's, that's no, hard. man. That's what I was going to ask. And yeah, you kind of touched on it there because you, you might lose two of the uh, well, It's not just me locations. though. Well, so the, well, my big thing will be my, my, my partner in Montreal. Um, the, the other thing is we, you know, we have upwards of 300 employees that, uh, you know, some of their families, uh, rely, well, not some of them, many of their families rely on that as their income. And if it's not there, it's, it's, uh, it's going to cause some hardship for sure. Yeah, it's tough. Um, well, uh, hopefully, once you get open, thank and you, if man. you thank you, you know, I, I mean, I'm not the only one. And uh, I, I feel the same. I feel the pain. Um, and, and I'm lucky because, you know, I do have other investments just besides those pubs. But if you're 100% exposed to that, it's, uh, it's a tough, tough situation. I think when you open up, you need to do like a round of Bitcoin meetups between pubs and just throw what it open to Bitcoin. Uh, honestly, we're going to throw a $100,000 party in Montreal, not because $100,000 is a, uh, is, is a meaningful, it's still a rounding error. So let's be clear about that, right? When Bitcoin hits a hundred thousand, it'll still be a rounding error, but I'd sort of promise some guys that we would do a party and, uh, yeah, we'll donate some beer to, uh, to celebrate. And there's a, there's a group of Montreal Bitcoiners, uh, that, that really made their marks, uh, led by the likes of Francis Pouliot and, uh, um, Elizabeth, uh, Lafontaine and, uh, you know, some, some really, really, really smart French Canadian, French Quebecers, uh, uh, that are into Bitcoin. And man, I didn't even know that because, uh, they were holding Bitcoin meetups in Montreal at places other than my pubs. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on next time. And, uh, so hopefully we'll, uh, we'll expand that, that invite, uh, uh, group, you know, but, um, yeah, look, 
the the truth in any business is you can't be a hundred percent invested pretty well in anything, including the pub business, without being exposed to some substantial risks. And to take that away and back to a risk management uh, uh, perspective, you always need to hedge potential outcomes. The risk is not, and bringing this back to Bitcoin, the risk is not owning Bitcoin right now. The risk is owning no Bitcoin. Okay, this is the narrative. My kids will forever, ever regret the fact that their father was an idiot if he did not at least try and pass them some Bitcoin given the potential asymmetric returns. It's not about saying it has no intrinsic value or I run a gold fund and I therefore hate Bitcoin. It's about managing your risk and managing your, uh, your potential exposure. If you had one orange pill left to give to someone, who would you give it to and why? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I would give it to, can I split it in two? Because there's two Canadians yeah. I'd like to give it to. It's your pill, I man. I would give it to, I'll mention one reporter, excuse me, one Canadian by name that uh, I would love to give it to. And his name is David Rosenberg. He is at Econ Guy Rosie. He is one of the most influential economists in Canada. Now, he's been so horribly wrong on equities, and he's so horribly wrong on long bonds, and he's so horribly wrong on Bitcoin that I'm not certain that uh, giving him the orange pill, he deserves it. But I would like to, him to get it because he actually has an audience that, uh, that uh, you know, is meaningful and he can change lives of Canadians. Um, and then the other half of the pill I would give to this research group out of Montreal called the Bank Research Institute, BRI. Um, and they just, again, they're somewhat affiliated with McGill University, my alma mater. Um, look, it, horrible analysis, intellectual laziness, uh, dig up all the old FUD and boiling the oceans crap. And, and, and yet they have a following, right? Here's the problem, Daniel, is these guys have platforms and people think they've actually done the work when they could get some summer associate who has, you know, he's given his marching orders, do some research on this, but here's the outcome. I want you, you know, do some research, but here's the conclusion. I'm giving you the conclusion, just back it up by research. So that's what happens with, uh, uh, you know, um, that's what happens with these people. Uh, they're either uh, intellectually lazy, there's status quo bias. There is, uh, you know, you have a, uh, you, you, you're conflicted, like Jamie Dimon. Do you think Jamie Dimon really thinks Bitcoin is so awful? Or is he really worried about how much it's going to disintermediate his business and therefore calls it a fraud and everything else under the sun two or three years ago? Uh, there, there's, you know, there's conflict there every, every way, shape and form. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the same with the mainstream media, right? The, the, the newspaper guys. Okay, Go right well, now to go about look, this. Look, let, let's be honest. Okay. If you're working in financial journalism, you're sort of like working at a, at a credit rating agency. You, you never made it. Okay. And you're, you're, you're bitter and you're, you know, Joe Weisenthal, like, look, you may have a platform, Joe, but your credit analysis is fucking horrible. You called Hertz equity, a potential buy when the bonds were trading at 40 cents on the dollar, dude, we should string you up for absolute fucking stupidity. Okay. You can't take that 
to the market and say, oh, there could be value in Hertz equity without even knowing where the prior claim and credit is trading. But that's our big Joe out of New York, editor of Bloomberg, and he's the boiling the oceans guy. Like, Joe, stop. All right. Do some fucking research, dude. You're embarrassing yourself and your you're absolutely, uh, you know, compromising futures of, of generations. I get so triggered by that shit, especially from like the, the Motley Fool or Hedgeye, those, those guys, they're so disingenuous and it's just so that they have people paying them money, like tens of thousands, hundreds yeah. of thousands of subscribers, and they're just clickbaiting them with these hack articles. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah, but, but, but we're winning. And, and when I say we, it's, you know who's winning? You know, you know how fiat never used to be in anyone's uh, vocabulary? At least people understand fiat now. And when you're mm -hmm. explaining Bitcoin, the easiest way that I start is by let's explain the shortcomings of fiat first. Okay. Well, I don't even care if you grasp what Bitcoin can do. Let's just expose fiat for what it is. Because therein is the problem. I mean, all these guys that are saying, oh, Bitcoin is so awful. So what's your solution? You're a modern monetary theorist, but you've never done math in your life. You're listening to Stephanie Kelton. That's never, she's never traded risk in her life. She's a half-assed professor. Okay. And, and you know, you cannot rely on this stuff just because she's a professor, you know, yes, my career academic. Okay. Thank you. That's, there's no disrespect in that, but you cannot opine on open financial markets. You've never done it. It's nuts. That's the fiat world. All right, Greg, this has it, been. It builds on itself, doesn't it? It, it does. Yeah. That's the fiat world. You summarized it very well. This has been a, a great conversation, man. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to do My this. My pleasure. And, and I want to thank you for everything you do. Um, I'm a noob uh, on this. I'm a pleb forever. Uh, I am forever grateful to the true leaders in this space on Bitcoin Twitter. Um, I do my part. I bring a different uh, narrative because I've traded credit, which most people have never done. Um, they can say they traded equities, but equities are a credit derivative. Okay, I'm saying that tongue in cheek. They are a subordinate claim in the capital structure. Until you understand what the credit markets are doing, don't even come to me with your equity ideas, you fucking morons. Okay, it is all about credit. It always has been. I love it. That's the best place to leave it. And I think you know maybe a title for the show. I'm a pleb forever. That 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 could be a nice little. Uh, I'll take it. Very proud pleb forever. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you for Catch having me. Catch you later, man. All right. Bye Thank bye. you so much. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed that one with Greg. Greg, thank you again so much for taking the time to come on and walk us through the financial markets and everything that you have experienced and you have seen working back at RBC in the day and realizing that they were insolvent. This is... <laughs> that, that, that is when you first started probably falling down a rabbit hole as we discussed and it's just so useful for, for people like you said towards the end of the interview there when you, you have academic economists telling you what's going on in the market they really have no clue because they've not sat at the desk trading or brokering these instruments they have no idea of the feel they have no idea of what is truly behind these shifts they they cannot see into the future no one can but like you said they just opine on and on about what we should be doing and 
thank goodness for Bitcoin. This is what we have right now, which is in our control. And taking charge and, and being self-sovereign. And if you want to do that, listeners, do I have the companies for you? Do you see what just happened? You can head over, if you're in the UK, to coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Or you can use in the US of a swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. If you use that code, you'll get a free 10 bucks. If you use that code with CoinFloor, you'll save on commission. Now, across Europe, you can use Relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H forward slash Bitten. Again, you're going to save on commission. And with all of these companies, you can then go and create your own affiliate link to help your friends and families come to Bitcoin and get some little kickbacks and they can save themselves too. But please remember... When you have started stacking your sats, it's time to take control of them and take them off the apps and off the exchanges. And you do that by using a hardware wallet. You can find the Bitbox02 at shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten. That will get you a small discount. And it is the best Bitcoin only hardware wallet on the market. Very easy to use. Go check it out. It's brilliant. If you want to learn more about me, you can head across to once-bitten.com. You can learn more about the book. You can find all of the uh, podcasts there as well. The book is called Choose Life. That's available on Amazon. Thank you, everybody, for listening and liking, sharing, subscribing, writing reviews or whatever it is you do to support the show in your own way. I look forward to the next one.